Welcome back to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. Today we are excited to play for you an interview we conducted with Michael Vlock. He is the professor of theology at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. We interviewed Dr. Vlock on the issue of how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. This is a critical issue when it comes to hermeneutics and, come, and, and studying the Bible and interpreting the Bible, knowing how the Bible uses itself. And he has this new book. Uh, there's a lot of glare on it. Oh, there we go. The Old in the New. And fantastic book. Highly recommend you picking up this resource. It's published by Cress Biblical Resources. So encourage you guys to pick up a copy of that. But we talked to him a little bit about some of the concepts found in the book and a few passages along the way. So it was a great conversation. I really appreciate Dr. Vlock's approach to these issues and how he is able to talk through things that are really quite complex. They can be quite complex, and yet he's able to do so at a very understandable level, and his book is very readable in that regard as well. So very appreciate his ability to do that. Now, we are going to give another caveat before this interview, like we did with the Dr. Bach interview. Just recognize you are listening to us interview a Ph.D., academic guy about how we read things. And so this isn't like easy, super easy listening. I would give the same recommendations as I did with the Bach interview, put it on single speed, just 1.0 speed and maybe listen to it twice because there's a lot of content in there that you could miss. If you just treat it like every other episode that you ever listen to, you just really need to slow down and hear this one out. Would you agree, Ken? Yes, I think so. And I have great faith in our listeners. Yes. Very good. Me too. Okay. All right. Well, here's our interview with Dr. Michael Vlock. Joining us today is a husband, father, author, theologian, and cornhusker. He was a professor of theology for 15 years at the Master's Theological Seminary, and just this year came on staff as a professor of theology at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. His books include Has the Church Replaced Israel, He Will Reign Forever, and his newest book that is hot off the press, The Old and the New, Understanding How the New Testament Authors Quoted the Old Testament. I first heard of him way back in... In 2008, maybe 2007, when Marty Zide presented at my small church in central Missouri, I picked up one of your uh, lecture series on CD close to 15 years ago. Dr. Michael Vlock, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's good to be on with you guys. This is a pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Right. Well, the book that we mentioned there, this uh, hot off the press, the old in the new, uh, clearly this book was a lot of work. You talk about how you analyze so many passages of scripture and in it, you summarize seven common positions that theologians take when describing the New Testament use of the Old Testament before walking through a number of examples. You mentioned that you studied somewhere around 350 uh, passages. Are all of those passages represented in this book or is it just a selection? within that. It's definitely not every single one, but I would say the vast majority. So there is, there is no official count, but if, if I, you know, if I'm right, that there's roughly, you know, 350, 355 or so quotations of the old in the new that I probably would be within a dozen or so Hmm. that where there's at least some. Gotcha. So what, how would you say, would you uh, summarize the purpose of the book and how you desire to see it used of God in the years ahead? Yeah, I think the purpose of the book was to give 
In a sense, the uh, whoever Christians are interested in the topic of New Testament use of the old, to give them a book that is scholarly in the sense that it you know deals with the real issues, New Testament use of the old, and uh, sometimes gets into technical issues. But I also wanted it to be very readable. So I, I noticed that there's a, a a lot of a lot of works have been done you know, whether journal articles or chapters in academic works. There's also a great, uh, you know, volume by Beale and Carson that a lot of people are aware of. It's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's a huge work where, where there's, you know, dozens of different contributors. So my goal was to write a work that would be scholarly, but be readable, being very clear that it's written by one person, and it's hard for one person to become an expert in every single New Testament use uh, you, every single time the New Testament uses the Old Testament, but to be able to uh, have this be a readable work where if a person works through it, they would get a good idea of what the issues are, what the different positions are, and then a, a real attempt to try to explain uh, most of the cases of New Testament use of the old, and then for sure to try to tackle the ones that are particularly tough. Because, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I mentioned in the book is, you know, there, again, there's roughly about 350 quotations of the Old Testament in the New, and there ends up being roughly around 15 or so, where there's a lot of debate, and, you know, some would say there's the possibility of non-contextual, perhaps allegorical or spiritual or typological interpretations that might drift from the contextual meaning of the Old Testament passages. So that's re that's really the goal there, is to try to hit that uh, sweet spot between an academic scholarly work and yet something that is readable. And that, you know, if, if somebody, you know, wanted to take a few days and, you know, and work through a book of that size, that, you know, they would be, they would be able to get it done. But really the, the goal was for the reader to be able to have a better understanding of the issue of New Testament use of the Old Testament. And, and I do make clear, you know, in the book that I am one person. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's almost on any example, you could probably find an article, journal article in an academic journal that may go more in depth on that particular issue. But it was, I, I was really trying to take a topic where um, a lot of people are intimidated by it because it's such a big issue and because you're dealing with Hebrew and Greek and all different types of views and just try to, uh, for one person to lay out what they think is going on. Hmm. There are two main endorsements for the book. The first being from Walter Kaiser. And he said, I cannot endorse Vlock's work too highly for I found that he hit the nail on the head in case after case. But interestingly, at least to me, <laughs> the other main endorsement of the book comes from Thomas Schreiner and he doesn't share the same position as you on this subject. So what, what value do you hope as the author of the book, what, what value do you hope readers will find in the book as they may even disagree with you about the New Testament's use of the old? Yeah, I guess I would say is where, you know, people are going to come, you know, they come to that issue with different levels of knowledge. And sometimes when it comes to this sort of thing, I try to put it like on a scale of one to 10. Like, let's just say one is somebody who they never even heard of this issue and they're just looking at it for the first time. You know, and then somebody, you know, on nine or a 10, maybe somebody, they've really looked into this issue. They've been looking at it for years. I guess in one sense, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push people along the scale. I mean, if somebody's a one or a two or a three or even a four, they're not going to become a 10 just from reading this book. Um, and so, but anyway, I want their, I want their understanding to be greater. So mm -hmm. people definitely don't have to agree with me on everything. As a matter of fact, I make it clear in the book 
that it would be probably very um, unlikely for anybody to agree with me on every single comment mm-hmm. I made on every single passage. So just trying to help people um, get a better understanding. Uh, I do think that some of the chapters early on where I discuss the different views of New Testament use of the Old Testament, I hope that is really helpful um, because I feel like when you're studying a complicated issue, it's good for people to know what the positions are. And so like what, what's on the buffet? You know, what are mm-hmm. the what are the options that, that I can choose from? So I really tried hard to lay out the positions in an accurate way. And so, you know, I, I think I listed seven um, diff- different positions on, on New Testament use of the Old Testament. So. So once you get those categories, like, you know, what, what are the different positions out there, then you're kind of in a position to be able to start saying, well, where, where will I fall on this? You know, mm-hmm. what, what position, you know, will I end up holding to? And then, you know, after that point, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I may, I state fairly early in the book that, you know, of those seven positions, I have a view that I hold to, which would be a consistent contextual use of the Old Testament by the New Testament authors acknowledging that there are several examples that are difficult to explain from a contextual use. But the main, the main thing that I will argue for, um, what I believe is that of those approximately 350 quotations of the Old Testament in the New, that the vast majority are contextual. So, and what I mean by that is there is a connecting link with the inspired original human authorial intent whether by means of explanation or by application of a passage. And that if, if I'll use the word if, if there are one, two, three, or four or so non-contextual uses of the Old Testament, that those would be the exception to the rule. And that the vast um, majority of cases can be understood contextually, which would be consistent with grammatical, historical, hermeneutics, and thus, you know, I conclude that the New Testament authors are not being overwhelmingly non-contextual with the old. They're, they're not changing the storyline of the Old Testament. You're not led to believe things like Israel and land and physical blessings and all those things were important, but now there's a different kind of fulfillment that takes place. So one of the things that will that I would say is connected with what I'm arguing for is I'd like to call it storyline continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And by, and by that, what I mean is, is that, the, the, you know, call it what you want, the narrative, the, the, the story, the storyline that is unfolding is very consistent with New Testament fulfillment that will occur via the two comings of Jesus. So when Jesus comes, he ends up being the ultimate everything, the ultimate seed of Abraham, the ultimate David. Uh, He's the last Adam. He's the ultimate Israelite. He's all of those things. Um, But at the center, that means that everything is being fulfilled as predicted. And because the New Testament is using the Old Testament in a primarily contextual way, we see that the storyline first developed in the Old will come to fruition uh, literally through of Christ, and therefore Christ ends up being the key for the fulfillment, but the fulfillment does not mean Old Testament realities vanish in significance, but it means that he's the fulfillment by which everything will occur. And I do think there will be times in the New Testament where 
you know, we, we get a fuller understanding of things because of Jesus. Like, you know, in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of passages predicting Gentiles are going to be blessed and they're going to be partaking in the covenants of promise. But when you get to Ephesians 2 and 3, you start to see the level uh, and the depth of what that means. So anyway, those are some of my thoughts on that. Yeah, I want to go back to something you just said a little bit ago about you're kind of almost explaining your view, right? You were in the book, you call it uh, single meaning, multiple implications, or and you gave an alternate, the, the consistent contextual understanding of the, of the New Testament authors writing about the new. And what do you see as some of the implications of New Testament of that? authors writing about the old. Uh, did I flip it around? Yeah. Oh, I flipped it around. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, the Old Testament authors wrote about the new, yeah. but yeah. They just didn't know. <laughs> so the, uh, yeah, so the, the New Testament authors, their use and understanding of the Old Testament being contextual. Can you just explain a little bit more about how you see this as uh, setting that view apart from some of the other views and just a little bit what some of those other views might be? Yeah, so... So the, I think we're the contextual view. So of, of the seven views, I do think that the consistent, overwhelmingly contextual view of which I would hold, I do think it to some degree is mutually exclusive of the other views. So now everybody's going to argue there's literal fulfillment of certain Old Testament prophecies, you know, that, that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5, linked with Matthew 2. So uh, so you're, 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 you're going to have that. So... Um, can you remind me of the specific. I, I got a little bit off track on that. Remind me of the specific of the. Uh, sure. Um, of the, so, how, how it differs from the other views. Got it. Exactly. Okay, I, I just remembered. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so the the way the way that it, it differs is is that it seems like the the other positions that I described, like the six other views, are assuming that there's a, a lot of non-contextual uses of of the Old Testament in the New. So whether you call that census plenty or, or fuller meaning or your know, typological interpretation or second temple Judaism hermeneutics, um, inspired census plenty or application, which are you know, some of the views that are, are mentioned there, it seems like a lot of those other views are grand, they're, they're assuming that there are a lot of non-contextual uses of the old, and then they are trying to explain how that is happening or why that is happening. And so in one sense, my, my particular view is mutually exclusive for that because um, I, I, I don't think that there's a, there's a lot of examples, if any, uh, where there's a non-contextual use. And so I don't have to appeal to things like census plenty or, or typological. Could, could you define that census plenty that's uh, obviously a different language. Uh, could you give us a definition for where that term comes from, census plenty Yeah, well, census, census plenty uh, is... And, and the key, th- it really is key to be uh, clear on defining of terms. So census plenier deals with the issue is, is the idea of fuller meaning. Hmm. And oftentimes with the concept of, you know, so thus, if you believe in census plenier, which a lot of people do, I think, I think most scholars do. So, um, so you can be very orthodox in believing in census plenier. So the census plenier is the belief that uh, in the Old Testament, be- because the Bible is a book where you have human authors and divine authors working together that the human authors didn't always know the full meaning of what they wrote so with the census plenier idea it would be that you know god inspires the old testament author particularly when dealing with prophecy old testament prophecy and he understood a certain level of what he wrote 
but God embedded or placed in that Old Testament passage a fuller meaning, some might even call it a hidden meaning, that when you get to the New Testament, supposedly the New Testament is the key or the decoder to be able to go back into the old to see what that fuller hmm. meaning was. Hmm. So so basically it's it's because the Bible is, I'm trying to say it from their perspective, because yeah. the Bible is an inspired book, it's the only book where we have human author along with divine author, that there can be like two meanings. There can be human authorial intent and then a fuller hidden divine intent. So then what would be your your views, nutshell objection to that? Because at, at hearing it at first, I think a lot of Christians could, lot could of, think, well, yeah, I could see that. Right. that. Right. Um, so what's your objection? I think it's an unnecessary hypothesis because I, I don't grant that because God is involved because you have the human and divine element that there has to be double meanings or hidden meanings. So I, I believe that when God inspired the, the human Old Testament authors to write what they did, they conveyed exactly what he wanted conveyed. Hmm. Like I, I, so I don't grant that the confluence of human divine author has to mean that there's hidden meanings or fuller meanings. Hmm. I think that when God wants to reveal something later, he just does it when he's ready to do that. Hmm. <laughs> and so... And so I believe that you can get to the meanings of Scripture. And then, then a second reason why I would say I'm not a big fan of census plenier is I've never found it helpful. <laughs> so in other words, when I'm going through the 350 quotations of the old, I never say, oh, wow, census plenier really helps with this example. Like, I think it sounds good, but I'm just saying from my own experience, and certainly I'm not omniscient and I'm not all-knowing and, and people may find different. But there's never been a case where I say, oh, yeah, the census plenier really helps explain what's going on here. So I've never found it to be very practical. So I'm assuming, you know, many of them would point to passages like First Peter 1 and where, you know, Peter's explaining that those who are writing the Old Testament, they were searching after, you know, what, what are the details of this prophecy that I'm writing? Yeah. And it was revealed to them that they weren't writing for themselves, but for us. And so perhaps that's one passage that the census plenier camp would point to and say, well, look, uh, here's Peter explaining that they didn't really know what was going on, but the divine author over the course of time was bringing about the full meaning. How do you deal with passages like that, ones that they would bring up? Yeah, like I've been through, I, as I look at, I think it's First Peter 1, 10 to 12. Right. I think where that comes about, like, I would just, I just don't think that teaches census plenier at all. Because hmm. uh, basically what it's saying is, is they didn't know, as they were writing the thing, when they were writing what they did concerning the Messiah, they didn't, they were try they were searching for, for what person or time this Messiah. Hmm. So in other words, like, I think when you look at First Peter 1, Peter's actually saying that the Old Testament prophets knew about the Messiah. As a matter of fact, they knew so much that they were writing about a messianic figure and his sufferings and his glory. Well, what didn't they know? They didn't know who he was. They didn't know what person or his timing. But not knowing who the individual is or when he appears on the scene is not a statement that they didn't know what they were writing about. Like, give, like, let me give you an example. You know, I'm, I'm a futurist. I know there's some maybe listening who aren't. But like, like, take the example of the Antichrist. Like, 
I believe you can know a lot of detail. Like I believe Daniel revealed a lot of details about the mm -hmm. Antichrist. Like, you know, in, in Daniel 7, the little horn, in Daniel 9, you know, that prince was to come. You read the last part of Daniel 11, it, it, it talks about all kinds of things that this Antichrist figure will be doing. Like if you were to focus on what Daniel wrote and what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, we, people have, we could literally write a book on what Daniel and Paul and John and Revelation knew about the Antichrist. But from our perspective, you know, even from our perspective now, not, I mean, we're not inspired like those guys, but, but in other words, we don't know who the Antichrist is. We don't know when he's going to show up, but we still know real things. And, and so I think that's, Hopefully that's a helpful example. So yeah. what I would just argue in First Peter one is they do know they're writing about the Messiah. They do know that this is going to relate to future times. They do know about his sufferings. They do know about his glory. But when it yeah. comes to who is he exactly and when will he arrive on the scene, that's what they don't know. But that that's not under that that's not an issue. They didn't understand what they wrote. Mm. It's just there's things in the future that haven't happened yet, so they don't know the person or the time. Now, there are a couple of views in those seven views you list at the start of the book, which is extremely helpful to read through those first 60 to 70 pages, whatever Thank that you. is. Um, that's a really great one-stop shop to see the categories. There are a couple of views that are that are trying to find themselves in the middle of this between the full-on census plenier camp and where you are. One of those is the inspired census plenier view, um, the inspired subjectivity view. I yeah. believe Robert Thomas right, uh, was right. an example that you used for that. Could you explain uh, that more middle ground view and how he would explain how this works? Yeah, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Robert Thomas. Uh, you know, he, he taught at the Master's Seminary for a long time. He was my uh, Greek professor. I think he's you know written the best commentary ever on the Book of Revelation. So I, have, I have tremendous respect for Dr. Thomas, and he really has been a champion for literal, grammatical, historical uh, interpretation. So, um, but he does believe that there are. He, I think he even uses the word many, many, in a sense, non-contextual uses of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think what uh, I think what his view ends up being is that he does believe that historical grammatical hermeneutics applies you know, to all of Scripture. But he does think there there are times where the apostles under inspiration, which was unique to them, and because of a new situation where Israel had rejected the kingdom that was being offered by Jesus at that particular time, that the inspired New Testament apostles sometimes took Old Testament passages and then used them non-literally in the New Testament. And so he calls that inspired census plenary application. So he would grant, which I don't, that there are many cases of a non-literal use of the Old Testament in the New but he would say it's linked to inspiration and it's linked to the new situation in light of Israel's rejection mm -hmm. of their Messiah. Now, without getting too much into the weeds on this particular thing, um, you know, it, it ends up being, he ends up calling it inspired census plenier application. And I, I think the use of the word census plenier have caused some confusion. Mm -hmm. And here's why, because the traditional Raymond Brown definition of census plenier that most people go by assumes that there's like an embedded fuller hidden meaning in the Old Testament passages. So in other words, like God embedded it in the Old Testament, it just needs to be discovered later. I don't think that was Dr. Thomas's view. I, 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 I almost think if, if he would have called his view inspired application, it might, it might've been better. So he's using census plenier in a little, in a little bit different way than uh, usually has been understood because he's not seeing there's embedded hidden meaning 
but it's almost more of the New Testament authors are using their inspiration to bring applications that are seem different from the from the original. So you're right to say it is kind of a mediating view, because it's not my view, but it's yeah. also not as uh, not as uh, I don't know what the right word is, but it it it, it it's, it's not quite what Raymond Brown and traditional traditional census plenier advocates argue. And by putting the term inspired in there, he's he's basically saying they were able to do that in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We should not try to replicate their right. usage of the Old Testament right. in that sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, that's right. So in other words, like for those who do who believe that the New Testament is using the Old Testament non-contextually many times, there's two different camps. So so in other words, like let's take uh, hypothetically a group of 10 scholars who think that the New Testament writers are, are often using the Old Testament non-contextually. Some of them might say, hey, that's a pattern for us. I mean, Jesus right. was the ultimate teacher of hermeneutics. And mm-hmm. if the apostles and Jesus are using a non-literary, we should do that. And so, but then doctor, to come back to it, Dr. Thomas would say, no, um, you, you don't do that. They, they were inspired, we're not. So th- we should never try to be non-literal with an Old Testament text unless we've seen the New Testament authors doing that. Yeah, it's common to hear the, that uh, the people say, oh, we just want to read the Bible like the apostles did, and they're appealing to that kind of idea. Right. Um, the, um, oh, another one of these mediating views is that of, of Daryl Bach, and you uh, gave him the, the, the heading of the eclectic view. Could you just yeah. explain what, uh, what's going on with, with that there? Yeah, as, you know, as with sometimes a lot of positions, if there's like, you know, two kind of polar opposite camps, sometimes you'll, uh, there'll, there'll be an attempt to have a mediating camp. And so it seems like with uh, Daryl Bach's position, which from his, he had two very helpful articles in the mid 80s dealing with uh, views of New Testament use of the Old Testament. And, and, and it seemed like in those that he, you know, he, he was uh, arguing for strongly for, you know, historical, the significance of historical grammatical hermeneutics and yet was open to the idea that there can also be, uh, canon- you know, we'd have to kind of go into what canonical means, but canonical interpretation or perhaps some use of Second Temple Judaism principles that were not not, not literal. So basically, uh, uh, and again, I want to be, I, I don't want to misre- misrepresent him, but from what I understand. He's a friend of the show. Is that it's kind, it's kind <laughs> of a combination of uh, where you're having historical, grammatical, contextual use there may be these other meanings that are additional to that and that can be explained by other methods, such as t- Second Temple Judaism or canonical interpretation. And therefore, it's kind of a, you know, a literal plus some other things that are going on. So it tries to be a mediating view. Right, what we'd like to do now is kind of move through some kind of quicker maybe hot seat kind of questions, working through a couple of, of concepts and passages of scripture in particular, uh, and see how you would respond and, and react to some of these things. Several weeks ago, I was listening to another Bible teacher who embraces the redemptive historical hermeneutic, and he made a statement about hermeneutical methods, and I'd like you to evaluate his statement. His challenge was that a Bible reader ought to go to Matthew 2.15, which quotes Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, and Matthew uses that in reference to Jesus, and that he ought to figure out what he believes is going on in that text, and that will reveal to the reader what hermeneutic they're bringing to the table and how they're going to understand the rest of really the New Testament and how the New Testament uses the Old Testament and with all of the hermeneutics there in play. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, I don't. 
obviously that is an example that needs to be seriously considered. But, but I think part of the problem in this is that everyone acknowledges that the Matthew 2.15 statement out of Egypt, I called my son with the reference back to Hosea 11.1 1, is one of the, the difficult examples. So I think everybody can grant that. I mean, there's a sense in which there's some interesting things going on with that. But, but, part, but where I think, I think the starting point can be wrong if we like go to the hardest ones first and then ask people, <laughs> well, what do you think of that? Like, I think part of the reason why there's so much confusion on this issue is we've been told generally, go to the hardest cases first and then come up with your theory. That's part of the reason, like in my book, what I said is I want to look at all of these equally. And mm -hmm. and so another, I would just submit this, like if there are roughly a dozen really hard ones to understand and we go to those first and we focus on those, we might come to the conclusion that, oh, this is hard all over the place. There's there's this huge pattern of non-literal use of the Old Testament. But what would happen if you studied the other 330 or so <laughs> that were clearly contextual and then you came to the harder ones? And so I don't agree. I mean, if, if that's what he's saying, I don't agree. We just go to Matthew 2.15 at first. And so now I have a view of Matthew 2.15. I, I, I think that there are what I think is going on with the uh, you know Matthew 2.15 quote of Hosea 11.1 1, out of Egypt. I called my son is you're seeing Matthew link events in Israel's history with events in Jesus's life to show that Jesus is the savior of Israel. He's the one who can restore Israel. Just like, you know, uh, there's the seed of Abraham where Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham and there's descendants of David and he's the ultimate descendant of David. There's a sense in which Christ is true Israel, but he's true Israel in a way that can restore the nation of Israel and bring blessings to the Gentiles. So I would say, now I'm not going to speak to this individual because I can't read his motives, but I, sometimes when I see that kind of argumentation, it's basically like saying, hey, go to this case where it's hard to explain contextually and, and then start to accept that, you know, literal understanding of the Old Testament doesn't happen all that often. Uh, I don't think it's a good way to start. When we consider prophecies in the Old Testament, do you see any prophecies in the Old Testament that contain a near and far fulfillment, uh, as are often called mountaintop prophecies? And how do you understand that in relation to the single meaning of a text? Since yeah. you hold to the single meaning view, if you see near and far fulfillment, how does that all uh, kind of mesh, yeah. I guess? I do see near and far. And I do think the explanation of that usually is because there's two comings of the Messiah that the New Testament makes very clear. So, so, on, so like I give you an example, like usually when I, you see a near far fulfillment, it's dealing with multiple details in a passage. So I usually don't see double fulfillment of one specific prediction, although I'm not saying it's impossible, but let's take Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. All four gospels quote Zechariah 9, 9, that the Messiah would come to Israel lowly on a donkey. All four gospels say that was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. But if you read the next verse of Zechariah in verse 10, Zechariah 9, 10, it says that this, this king is going to rule from sea to sea. And it talks about an earthly kingdom reign. So I would say when Zechariah 9, chapter 9 was written, from what we now know is verse 9, refers to the first, was fulfilled with the first coming of Christ, 
but the Messiah's reign over the earth will be fulfilled with the second coming of Christ. So Zechariah 9.10 is not quoted uh, in, 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 in the Gospels, but 9.9 is. So to me, near far usually refers to when there's multiple details in a passage. And therefore, you can see some fulfilled with the first coming literally, and then others will be fulfilled with the second coming literally. Now, I do think that you can get into examples like in Daniel. Daniel speaks of both the figure we now know as Antiochus Epiphanes and also refers to a future Antichrist. So, but I would even say in Daniel that there's certain passages where Antiochus <laughs> is referred to and there's others with the future Antichrist. So I do think you can see typological connections and those sorts of things, but um, I think it's pretty rare to see where you have one specific prediction with one meaning in mind by an Old Testament author, and then you see it like with the double meaning in the New Testament. I'd like to ask you about that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes issue. Um, because Jesus referenced that passage in, in Matthew 24 as well. And in the book, I, I remember reading in the book how you talk about there's that initial near fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes from Daniel uh, chapter 9, but then there's that far fulfillment that is coming a, in an eschatological age. Uh, yeah. And you also note how there is disagreement on about whether or not there is any fulfillment in the text uh, in regard to AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. right? Or whether or not Jesus was referring to an eschatological fulfillment later on. And I'm just wondering how you would articulate this, uh, since in the book you take the position that Jesus was referring to an eschatological event only, and you've already kind of recognized that there is kind of the near and the far with Antiochus Epiphanes and the age and the eschatological fulfillment. Why could there not be an additional fulfillment even in Jesus's view of AD 70, and then also an eschatological fulfillment as well? Well, the thing that I would argue is I, I actually think in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, that both AD 70 is predicted. Hmm. When it talks about after the 69th week, you're going to have the destruction, you're going to have the destruction of the temple in the city. Like, I, I think that was a prediction of AD 70. But I think, and I'm trying to remember exactly what, whether, whether that's verse... Uh, 25 or 26. So here, here's what I'm getting at is I think Daniel 9, 24 to 27 predicts both AD 70 and the future coming tribulation period. Hmm. So after the 69th week, um, the, the sanctuary in the city face what, you know, face the destruction that it did. But then when you get to into the 70th week of Daniel, that's when you actually see tribulation events that I would still consider future and eschatological. And my position would be is like, I believe in Luke's, um, in the Olivet Discourse of Luke 21, that Jesus explicitly refers to AD 70 and then the future tribulation period. Mm. I, I think Luke 21 verses 20 to 24 is AD 70, where the armies come and do their destruction. And then it talks about this times of the Gentiles that follows that in Luke 21, 24b. And then he starts talking about the tribulation after that. So... So to me, there's a sense in which I don't have to appeal to double fulfillment of a prophecy or typological fulfillment because there are Old Testament passages. Like, I think there's one in, I think it's Hosea 3, um, Daniel 9, where AD 70 is predicted. Hmm. And then I think like in Luke 19, 41 to 44, Jesus is predicting the AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem. So what I would say in regard to that is you could just use a literal hermeneutic and decipher what are the predictions of AD 70 in both the Old Testament and the New Testament? And what are future eschatological things dealing with Jerusalem and the temple in Israel that, you know, that are still unfulfilled from our standpoint? So I would argue that a consistent grammatical historical hermeneutic will allow you to see both. 
So really, it really comes down to acknowledging which details have been fulfilled and which details have not yet been. Right. Because like in the Daniel passage, I, I think that the that first reference to the destruction of the city and, uh, and the sanctuary is in the period after the 69th week, but before the 70th week. And then the temple stuff of the, of the Antichrist, that prince who is to come, he's doing things uh, after that. But none of the details have any more meanings than just one. Uh, all, so it's determining um, where the details are fulfilled, not determining how many meanings are in each detail, right? Because yeah, and I would just say meaning. that's more of my inductive study is. Like, you know, when you're studying things, like I want to be open to double fulfillment and those sorts of things. And like if Scripture's teaching that, I want to go there. I'm just saying that when it comes to this sort of issue, I'm usually finding that near and far fulfillments can be detected by the historical grammatical hermeneutic, and you don't have to look for like multiple meanings in any one hmm. verse. Very good. We just have uh, one kind of multi-part question left dealing with some more difficult type questions. In the book, you list about uh, 14 or 15 New Testament instances where it's really difficult to see how the Old Testament or it was used contextually by the New Testament authors as they quoted it. How did yeah. you arrive at that list of those passages? Yeah, so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So you're, you're right. I, you know, I came up with a little over a dozen examples of 14 or so where, yeah, so basically what I tried to do is over years of study and looking at this issue, I tried to be honest and say, hey, what are some examples that a reasonable person at first glance might think are non-contextual uses of the old. And so basically that list just came from digging into that issue for years and being aware of what you know different scholars have said concerning those passages. So you know, you can maybe argue there should be another one or two or three or four or whatever. But it seems like those ones, it would be pretty easy to find debate amongst scholars, whether in journal articles or books on those particular ones. Or, you know, one of the things that I like to do is whenever there's a views book on something, like mm -hmm. there's three views on New Testament use of the old, I like to go to the passages where the people who don't believe in contextual, consistent contextual, the examples that they're using. Mm -hmm. So I guess the short answer would be is for those who don't believe in consistent contextual use of the Old Testament or primarily contextual, I, like, I tried going to the examples that they were using. And since we brought that up, what I what I end up arguing in the book is out of those 14, I think there's about seven where there's a pretty easy explanation that there's a mm -hmm. there's a contextual understanding. And then when it really gets down to it, you're dealing with a handful, you know, three, four or five that are difficult for even for somebody like me, you know, to to explain exactly what's going on. But one of the things that I argue as well is, is that um in order for my theory to be right, I don't grant that I have to be right on every single case. And or, or nor do I grant that I must be able to explain to the harshest critic to their satisfaction that every single one is contextual. To me, if you can argue if you can prove they're overwhelmingly contextual, if there ends up being if there ends up being some non-contextual uses, those are the exception to the rule and not the rule. So how do you, as not in your position as scholar, theologian, professor, but just as a Christian wanting to know what God has said, how do you resolve in your heart those three, four, five, however many passages there are uh, that are the outstanding passages that at the end of the day, 
you just don't really have an answer for that. How do you live with that tension just as a Christian? I'm pretty comfortable with it because one thing I've determined when it comes to studying God's word is that I would rather just say, I don't know, or be very tentative with a theory than to come out and be wrong on something. Hmm. So, I mean, there's been several times in my career or whatever, where it might take me a couple of years to truly figure out what a passage says, hmm. that sort of thing. And so, um, so when it you know, comes to examples like Jesus's, you are God's statement, like, you know, he, he, there's this quote where he says, you are gods, and he, he, he quotes an Old Testament passage there. That's just hard to know what's going on. Um, you know, in, in Ephesians 4, with the giving gifts to men section, there, I mean, it'd, it'd be, take a long time to go into a lot of details, but I think Ephesians 4, the giving gifts to men reference, that, that's like a hard one. But I will say that, like, usually on those harder ones where I have less of an understanding, usually even the whole contextual, non-contextual is not even really at the debate of those. Hmm. So in other words, it's not like the, you know, if I were to get a note from heaven, hypothetically speaking, that uh, that it was a different view than I thought it was, that I would change my overall view. I just think hmm. they're just hard to understand. Hmm. Now, on that list of 14 passages of the difficult 14, I I was surprised not to see any passages from Hebrews on the list, because it seems to me that many covenant theologians will point to Hebrews, particularly chapter 7 onward, chapter 7 through 9 more specifically, I guess, as explaining the fulfillment of all old covenant types and shadows and even promises in the new covenant in Christ and in the church uh, being the substance of all those old covenant prophecies. How do you respond to such broad strokes arguments about the maybe on a more thematic level of the new covenant is the substance and the fulfillment of the old and it's all here and now? Yeah. Uh, and, and they point to maybe Hebrews to make that type of argument. I think the people that are arguing like that are totally misunderstanding what's going on with the uh, with what's being described as, as a shadow or what we would call types and shadows. I think the error that is often made from that camp is that Hebrews is calling the Old Testament as a whole a shadow or types and shadows when the specific argument in Hebrews 7 to 10 is that the Mosaic law is a shadow. The law and its elements are, and the New Testament predicted, I'm sorry, the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31 predicted there come a day where the new the new covenant would supersede the older Mosaic covenant. I mean, that's the whole point of uh of uh, Hebrews 8, 8 to 13. So the strategic error that is being made is Hebrews is not teaching that the Old Testament, um, things like Israel, land, physical blessings, those sorts of things are sh temporary shadows. It's teaching that the Mosaic law specifically is a shadow. So I think mm -hmm. they're casting too broad of a net. And part of the reason why I didn't include those in the, in the difficult list of 14 is because they're really not that difficult. I think what's happening is people are coming from wrong theological presuppositions, but those quotations of the old really aren't that, that hard. You're, you're just getting straight up contrast between the superiority of the new covenant compared to the older Mosaic covenant. Very good. Well, we really do appreciate you coming on. We appreciate your time. Encourage our listeners to, to pick up a copy of this book, The Old and the New. It's You Will Not Regret It. It'll be a great resource for you to use for years to come. But we do want to give you, Dr. Vlock, just the opportunity to give the last word to encourage our listeners in the area of, of studying the Bible well. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, that the, uh, again, tying it into this book and this topic, that um, it's, 
part of understanding the Bible well and understanding the, con the, the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament is to know how the New Testament is using the Old Testament. It, it, it is a topic that at a lay level, at your usual church level, you usually don't hear very many messages about it. I can only speak for myself, but I don't think I've ever heard a message in a sermon that was directly dealing with, with the, the theory of New Testament use of the Old Testament. Obviously, if somebody comes across a quotation, they're going to say something. But I'm talking like a real hard look at that particular issue. And so because you have roughly 350 quotations of the old. And we haven't even talked about illusions. There's a whole lot more illusions. It is a big deal to try to grapple with this issue of how the New Testament authors are using the Old Testament. And I would say, based on how people come, what conclusions they come to, they can almost get like different storylines uh, in mm -hmm. the Bible, not necessarily a different gospel, but like different stories of what, yeah. of what God is doing in history. So I would say, you know, again, coming back to that one to 10 scale, let's say you've never even heard of the issue. <laughs> you're a one or you're a 10. You've been looking at this for decades and you got really strong opinions. Probably for people that consider themselves a 10, maybe the book wouldn't, maybe wouldn't help them. But let's just say people that are perhaps <laughs> under an eight or so, you know, okay. I'm just hoping that it increases your learning. You, may, you, you probably won't agree with everything that I've said, but you'll be aware of the different theories You'll be, um, you will see on the vast majority of cases, some attempt to try to explain what is going on. And um, I, 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 my, my hope in the book is that you'd be able to understand the word of God and love Christ uh, even more as a result of understanding that. And I do think it will give you confidence that, I, like I said, you know, when, when you see the New Testament is really using the Old Testament context, it really does give you confidence that there is continuity in, in, in the storyline. And those are some of the things I'm hoping that are accomplished. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Vlock, thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah, thank you guys. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate it, Ken and Jeremy. Thank you.